Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hey, it's Kramer. My mission is simple, to make you money. Man Money is away today. But don't worry, I've got something special for you from my friends here at CNBC. Listen in. And good evening. I'm Scott Wapner. Jim Cramer is off this week, so we're trying something a little different. All week long, we're going to bring you the fierce debates around the most provocative questions of the day, the sharpest opinions, the hottest takes, and some of the most controversial characters finding the sharp, pointy corners of the business world. This is On The Edge. It is good to have you with us on this Monday night. Our top takes tonight. Should your employer mandate a vaccine? Some may try it. Is it right? Is it legal? And when we do get back to normal, will a roaring economy bring raging inflation? Some say it's inevitable. Is ETF superstar Kathy Wood the main character in a new stock market mega bubble? And billionaire philanthropy. It's all the rage if you're rich. But is it a scam? The Dow ripped to a new record high today on more optimism over vaccines and getting back to normal. And that's where we begin tonight with our hottest take. Get a vaccine or get fired. It might seem harsh. It could end up your reality. After the government said employers were within their rights to mandate vaccines for their workers. Here to weigh in is author and Vanity Fair contributor William Cohen. Trung Fan is lead writer at The Hustle and entrepreneur Michelle Romanow. It's good to see everybody. Let's get out on the edge, if we could, with this first question. No jab, no job. Is that, Michelle, what we are talking about? Well, it is what we are talking about. I mean, look, I'm going to get the vaccine, but I don't think I can enforce my employees to get the vaccine. That just doesn't seem right that I could say, you have to put this health thing. Certainly you could restrict access. You know, as early as the 1930s, there was a precedent on these yellow booklets where you had to show to enter a country that you had a yellow fever vaccine. And so I think what employers will be able to do is, you know, they'll be able to say, you can't go in this area, you can't do these things if you don't have a vaccine, but actually mandating to do it, I don't know. I think that's pretty sticky territory. No, no, Chong, these are private companies. Can't they do yeah, what they I, uh, want have to, go to mandate that, a safe working environment? No, I think uh, I think what's going to happen here is similar to uh, post 9-11 with the TSA. You, there's just going to be an appetite for people accepting that there's going to be more regulation from the corporate and the government side. And you could see a situation where, if, remember a few years ago, there was the Masterpiece Cake Shop uh, Supreme Court case, where basically, this is not identical, but uh, the court was basically determining that, you know, certain uh, limits to what, uh, an individual claim is free speech. If you're a private company and you want your workers to be safe, I think we just all went through this pandemic. A lot of people will be like, yeah, you know, I understand it. You don't necessarily have to agree with it. You can go find another company potentially. And I could see something like this rolling up all the way up the Supreme Court where an employee is like, no, I'm going to sue you. And I disagree. OK, so, Bill, is, is this going to be the next great big battle of the pandemic? 
Uh, no, I don't think it's going to be a great big battle because I don't think it's happening that often. I think most people are going to get the vaccine and are happy to get the vaccine. Uh, there will be people who don't want to get it. And I was talking to a, a woman uh, who works in a nursing home in Denver who's in her 20s, single mother, uh, didn't want to get the vaccine. She was fired. And obviously that's terrible for her and it's inappropriate. And, you know, she should be able to have a conversation with her employer about her fears about the vaccine without necessarily it ending up with her losing her job. But I think most people are going to come to this voluntarily that they're going to do it. And most people want this, Scott. They want it pretty badly at this point. Yeah. OK, well, the, the data does suggest, Bill, that you're right. In fact, in a Pew Center, Pew Research Center poll published on Friday, 69 percent of U.S. adults said they'd either already had the vaccine or certainly intend to get it. And you can bet, Michelle, that the results of a Yale School of Management survey uh, executives, they greatly want their employees to get the vaccine. 150 were surveyed. Of course, 78 percent said yes. Only 22 percent said no. You know, corporate America is thinking about this very important question. Oh, without a question, they are thinking about it. And I and I think people would love to do this. And, and maybe Trent's right. This might be part of the TSA. I just don't think, you know, I could mandate my employees to, to say they have to take a vaccine. I think I could limit their access. I think it would be very hard for say you have to do this. But I actually don't think this is going to be a problem. I think you're you're right that people largely want these. People want their lives back to normal. And I think for the vast majority, people are not gonna have any problems getting a vaccine. And we can do all sorts of things to encourage, to share the facts on why to do this, to do social proof, to make it all possible for our employees to do this. Okay, now I'm gonna ask another provocative question. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say what might be nice, Scott, is to, if people who've gotten two doses of the vaccine or or the J&J vaccine, uh, had some sort of way to identify that they had it, like a, like with the TSA. If you have a you know a TSA pre-check uh, card or wristband or something, so that you know you can go to out to a restaurant and know that you you know people around you will know that you're protected. Yeah, I mean a lot of these companies should really start rolling le- the contact. Sorry, the contact tracing. I know a lot of companies, a lot of governments are talking about that. And that can be something that is very low friction, right? It takes a lot of the way of the conflict of, hey, did you get vaccinated? Did you not get vaccinated? And uh, that can really help on the social proof side because if you're coming into the office and 90% of your office is vaccinated and then it's just on this app that you're not, I mean, it's just gonna be kind of weird. So the social proof angle of it will be very strong if you can rule out the contact tracing properly. Let's leave this debate with this last question, Michelle. If you don't wanna get a vaccine and your employer says, okay, you can work at home, but we're going to pay you less to do so. Is that cool? Um, I don't think it's cool that an employer could pay you less to work at home, especially if you're doing the same work. I do think it's in an employer's realm to change your pay based on where you are geographically. And we're seeing a lot of big companies do that because the cost of living is just very different. Again, my costs are largely the same if I'm working from home or if I'm going to the office. In fact, I Oftentimes, if you're in a if you're in a city like New York or San Francisco, you need more space and better bandwidth in your apartment to work. But um, yeah, I don't think they're I don't think they should be able to pay less. Okay, our next hot take. So once we do get back to work and onto the rest of our lives, we hope is a roaring economy going to bring raging inflation. Big cyclical stocks not worrying about that, at least for today. As hedge fund legend David Tepper tells CNBC, the major move in interest rates likely done for now. But what about over the longer term? Is inflation going to rage? Bill, that is the talk on the on Wall Street. You follow the street. You know what what 
what finance people and bankers try and predict? They say inflation's coming. Are they right? Well, uh, interest rates are going up, uh, no question about it. And some commodities have absolutely already increased in price dramatically. Copper among them. Uh, uh, oil prices are up considerably. I remember when uh, uh, Scott, you know, there was a negative uh, below zero uh, oil price uh, a year ago. I mean, now we're up in the 60s. So there's no question prices are, are rising. Uh, we've had you know, the Fed keeping interest rates at ridiculously low levels for you know, nearly 10 years now. And now we've got these huge stimulus, stimulus, $6 trillion worth of stimulus. So it's probably, and again, I'm not an economist, but it's probably inevitable that there's going to be uh, some inflationary pressure in this economy. But again, I think we're headed towards a serious roaring 20s, at least for the next two or three years. And how that affects, that's, you know, are there going to be asset bubbles and stock prices are going to go up? Bond prices are going to go down because uh, interest rates are going to go up. So it's going to be an interesting time. That's what they call trung around these parts, the reflation trade. We're counting on higher interest rates because there are a lot of people who agree with Bill that you are going to have a roaring oh, 20s kind of environment. There's so much pent up demand. It's 100 percent coming. I think if you live anywhere that was even remotely sunny last summer, you saw people out on the beaches, out on the streets. This is like three months after the pandemic started and people are in the streets having a good time. I live in Vancouver. Last July, it was insane. You couldn't go to the beach and it wasn't packed. Uh, people were doing a little bit of, of you know, safety measures, wearing a mask. People want to be out there. They will get out there. But I think something that is uh, a little bit uh, shaky on the time frame for consumer demand is you actually don't know when everybody's going to be vaccinated. But I think there's a short-term thing and a long-term thing which will guarantee that inflation is going to go up. Number one is the job markets are getting tighter. You saw the employment numbers just last on Friday. Uh, the, every, they're ticking down. Unemployment numbers are ticking down. People are getting jobs. Wage inflation is definitely coming in 2021. And then longer term, for sure, what's going to happen is that people are talking about bringing supply chains back to America just because you're not going to have a situation again where China controls all the medical supplies. But the population is ready for this time. If you have to pay 30% more just to know you have a robust supply chain, you're going to do it. So I talk in five, 10 years, you're reshoring everything. Prices are going to go through the roof, but people will be willing to pay for it. Well, I don't know. Michelle, gas prices are already going up. See what oil prices are doing. Our Phil LeBeau, who covers the airlines here at CNBC, said airline prices are going up 6% every single month. Get ready to pay more for just about everything, right? Yeah, I mean, look, the government has printed a lot of money. And as we can see, you know, they were trying to do that to make up for, you know, lost labor wages, but they kind of overpaid. And so a lot of that money went into savings, a lot of that money went into investments. And now more and more capital is ch chasing fewer and fewer high quality assets, which is, you know, in the private tech markets, we're seeing valuations go, you know, very, very high. Uh, we're seeing more people. Um, chasing real estate, houses, luxury goods. And so all of those asset prices are are increasing. When we look at, you know, inflation, typically it's like a basket of goods and we're not seeing the inflation there, but certainly within higher end, you know, asset prices, we are definitely seeing this. And so I'm, you know, a big believer that that as well, when people are vaccinated and can get out, there is going to be a lot of pent up demand uh, for keeping doing. It's also going to be interesting to see what governments do in terms of printing money and, and really backing off. I mean, it was actually them that caused some of this inflationary environment. And so I think when they start to see that, they can also pull that back uh, pretty quickly as well. I just want to add that until you can't that, print uh, any more. 
No, sorry. I just want to talk about 08 when there's those big bailouts and everybody's expecting inflation and why it didn't come. There's a liquidity trap. A lot of money just stayed in the banks instead of getting lent out. This time, the money is going direct into people's checking accounts and almost directly from there into Robinhood and into NFTs. So you're going to see a lot of this crazy activity because the money's not being intermediated by the banks anymore. The money's going straight to the, to the, the end population. All right, we'll leave it there for now. Bill Cohen, Michelle Romanow, Trunk Fan, all sticking with us. We're just getting started. Coming up in the Fight for 15, is this trillion-dollar powerhouse actually a friend of the worker? The Amazon effect is driving the wage debate in a direction that may surprise you. Plus, the puppet master behind GameStop's recent moves. Are Robinhood traders at risk of being chewed up? And catch the falling knife. Kathy Wood is doubling down on the momentum trades that made her the star of 2020. A make or break moment for tonight's main character when On the Edge returns. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is Constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a seventy-five dollar sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com/slash/MadMoney. Just go to Indeed.com/slash/MadMoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com/slash/MadMoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to On the Edge. I'm Scott Wapner. We're finding the sharp edges of business on this show. Where is the conflict? Who agrees and disagrees? So now a segment we're calling Split Decision. A few hot takes from the world of business. Then we'll ask our panel to pick sides. Bill Cohen, Michelle Romanow, Trunk Fan, all still with us. First up, here we go again. GameStop surging today up 50 percent at one point after the company said Chewy co-founder and board member Ryan Cohen will lead its shift to e-commerce. Well, the mania around trading in GameStop sending Robinhood to new heights recently, the popular investing app adding scores of new customers in recent months, also drawing fire, though, and a lawsuit for how it operates. So is it gamifying stock trading and leaving millions at risk of major losses? That's the big question. Let's go back to our panel. All right, Trung, what do you think? Robinhood, good, bad, or what? I think... Uh it's a pretty complicated stuff, black and white. My answer would be that they are not doing anything that's particularly different from a lot of the other brokers. I mean, you will get notifications and bell ringings from Fidelity, from Schwab. I mean, everybody's doing some type of gamification. Robinhood went a little bit far with confetti, which I will admit. And uh, they're probably getting scared, too, because their whole thing was we're going to democratize finance. And as soon as you kind of stick that this is your mission statement and you kind of do something that looks the opposite of that, you're going to get scared. And that's exactly what happened on that day when they basically pulled the trades on GameStop. 
So I think Robinhood, if they will have to rein in something, it might be the margin and the options trading. A lot of uh, new investors don't understand that. But if you're talking about are they worse than the other brokers, I, I don't think they are. Yeah. Well, Bill, you've been around the street. You've seen a lot of action. Is there anything wrong with what Robinhood's doing? I mean, this is a retail renaissance. This is the company that's made it happen. That's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, people have been talking about the democratization of Wall Street and democratization of capital for about 50 years, uh, Scott. Uh, you know, since the Big Bang, uh, you know, with brokerage fees going down. Sure, a lot more people can trade. But frankly, you know, I'm very, very concerned. I mean, look, you know, the YOLO types, they want to go all in on GameStop and have a good time and ride it up and ride it down. Eventually, these stocks are going to trade on their fundamentals. And yes, the reason I say a GameStop is going crazy today is because maybe they're actually organizing a committee of directors to think about what their real business plan should be and how to take advantage of their high stock price. They should be issuing equity uh, and changing their business plan completely, recapitalizing this thing. And maybe that's what uh, investors are hoping for. But for me, it's like a total scam. It's a total flash in the pan. It has nothing to do with fundamentals. It has everything to do with sort of this trading fantasy that people are engaging in. And frankly, it's a bit of a shame. But, you know, hey, it's a free country. If you want to do this, do it. Fine. Well, what role does Robin have Robinhood have in that? Right. I mean, everybody takes risk when they buy stocks. Right. Is it Robin Hood's fault that younger investors yeah. are going on their platform bill and using it to buy no. GameStop or anything else? No, it's not. It's not their fault. I mean, they, they weren't properly capitalized. They may be better capitalized this week than they were, say, a month ago. Uh, they halted trading. N you know, no exchange is going to be very popular when it halts trading. So, you know, there are young Exchange, they've got a lot of growing and learning to do. No, I, I don't really necessarily blame blame them. This this whole phenomenon, I mean, it, to me, it's like what happened with Hertz, you know, what it was a year, year and a half ago when the bankrupt <laughs> uh, stock of Hertz started trading uh, up because, you know, people thought they maybe could make some money. And the SEC had to step in and say, hold on, guys, not so fast. And frankly, that's what needs to happen again with GameStop. And maybe Gary Gensler, once he gets confirmed, will step in and stop this shenanigans. Michelle, last word on this segment to you. Yeah, I just don't think this is predatory. I think generally, you know, it is really great that a whole new generation of people have learned about the market and how to train off the market. Sure. All day long, they can YOLO and say these are meme stocks and, you know, gotten their fundamentals from Reddit. But at the end of the day, once you've lost a couple of bucks yourself, I think you take things way more seriously. And so what this generation was is they effectively took people that were in fantasy football and in gaming and spending time there and say, did you want to learn about the market? Did some people lose money doing that? For sure. Was there not the fundamentals behind GameStop? It was absolutely not the fundamentals there. But I think generally, you know, teaching more people about the markets is a good thing. Did they probably go too far? I mean, you know, it's like single day settlement. That's probably OK. And fractional shares, that's probably OK. Margin trading is pretty advanced stuff, probably not the things you want to do in your first couple of trades. And so that's probably where I think this might be pulled back. But generally, hmm. I'm very pro democratization of access to trading and making your own mistakes with your own money. And you certainly learn the absolute fastest that way.
Okay, so maybe a couple things okay, maybe one or two things that, that, are, that are not okay. Let me move to the next topic, hot takes on Amazon. That after boycott Amazon trended on Twitter over the weekend, users urging people not to buy from Amazon this week in solidarity with workers who are voting as we speak whether to unionize at a plant in Alabama. But a new study argues that Amazon is actually good for wages. Which is it, Trung? Good or bad? I think, no, I... I I mean, I saw that study, the New York Times piece. And uh, so when Amazon uh, raises wages, is what the study says, uh, other competitors in the, in the locality also raise wages. But I think what's going on here with Amazon is, I mean, they do this every time. If there's an easy strategic win for them, a PR win, they're going to do it. But they did it with the state taxes when they basically said, we're going to start collecting state taxes. It's because they knew a lot of their competitors, if they had to start collecting state taxes, it would impact the business. Last summer in California, California rolled out a bill. We need to start regulating e-commerce marketplaces like we regulate brick and mortar. Amazon came out of nowhere and said, oh, yeah, let's totally do that. It's because they know that their competitors like Etsy can't afford the type of regulatory cost that would take. So the, the, the answer is part it's true. The other side is just cynical, right? It's it's jujitsu. It's PR jujitsu. They've done it before. And uh, it might be, you know, in the end, it might be positive, but they could also drive out competitors and just have total monopsony. And they call it the shots five, 10 years down the road if nobody else to compete for labor. Yeah. Here, here's the problem, Michelle. The graphic we just showed you, right, from a New York Times story says when Amazon rages, raises its, its wages, other businesses follow suit. Yet I got another story in front of me that says many Amazon warehouse employees struggle to pay the bills and more than 4,000 of them are on food stamps in nine states. That's studied by the Government Accountability Office. Only Walmart, McDonald's and two dollar store chains have more workers requiring such assistance. So which is it? I mean, look, this pandemic has certainly brought upon a bifurcation of our economy where high earners have done incredibly well and low earners have done have had a much harder time. So is it good that Amazon has, you know, minimum wage in Alabama is 725, right? Like they've raised this to $15 in many ways. Small businesses are going to struggle to to keep up. Um, but but ultimately, I think that, you know, as we've been talking about through this whole segment, like we see asset prices rising and whether that's Bitcoin or NFT or stocks that people are trading. And that really hasn't flowed down to low income earners. And so I think if there are folks like Amazon taking a stand and, and putting out higher wages and allowing some of that benefit to come to lower income earners, that's actually a good thing, not a bad thing. Yeah. Talking about food stamps on a day when a Kobe Bryant basketball card went for one point four million dollars or something like that. So your point is well taken up next. The most bankable names in business. We'll take a deep dive into one person making themselves the main character of this market. ARK Invest Kathy Wood. Reddit hails her as Queen Kathy. Do you believe the hype? Right now, the market is broadening out, and we think in an underlying sense, the bull market is strengthening, and that will play to our benefit over the longer term. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at Chevron.com slash meeting demand. 
Hey, I'm Ruben. My band and I have a new song. I'm also a tow truck driver. When you move over and slow down, you're making sure I get to go home at the end of the day and see my bandmates. When you see flashing lights, remember, they're not just roadside workers. Thank you for moving over and slowing down. Welcome back to On the Edge. I'm Scott Wapner. Kramer's off this week. Here are some of the stories that have us on the edge of our seats today. More than 20,000 U.S. organizations have been compromised through a Microsoft email software hack. The attack, reportedly originating from a Chinese-backed hacker group and targeted small business and state and local governments, tens, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people have been compromised. They may have been. It's just a massive and stunning story. Disneyland and other California theme parks and stadiums could reopen by April 1st. That's good news. After nearly a year, the state will allow parks to restart with severely limited capacity. And speaking of reopening, 488 New York City public high schools will reopen on March 22nd, the largest school system in the country. However, a majority of students will continue learning from home and high schools in other large districts may not reopen for months. Now to our main character. Every night, we're going to take a deep dive into one of the most bankable names in business. Today, ARK Invest's Kathy Wood. She took the investing world by storm in 2020 for picking the momentum stocks that dominated the pandemic. But is she now becoming the face of this market bubble? Tesla, one of her biggest bets, down 30% from its highs. She continues to double down and buy. Here's what she told CNBC earlier today. The probability we have put on uh, Tesla really winning the lion's share of the autonomous taxi network market in the United States also has gone up. So you might imagine the price targets have gone up considerably. Well, Leslie Picker covers the investment industry for us, joins us now. Not backing down one bit, Leslie, is Kathy Wood. Mm. No, and that's why Kathy Wood has reached cult-like status in recent months, Scott. Her big conviction bets in those high-octane areas like Tesla and Bitcoin were seen as bold and fruitful, well, at least up until recently. Wood's flagship ARK Innovation ETF soared 150% last year. But it's down roughly 30% since its highs last month. But Wood, undeterred, said on CNBC earlier that the sell-off has made her even more bullish. Now, it's that kind of chutzpah that earned her the nickname Mama Kathy on the Reddit boards. The retail crowd has largely applauded her bullishness on Tesla and her openness, publishing research and valuation models, as opposed to, you know, the old-school Wall Street firms that reserve that research for their proprietary clients. Now, the 65-year-old daughter of Irish immigrants grew up in California and began working in traditional asset managers like Capital Group and Jenison Associates. She jumped around to a few other shops before ultimately launching ARC, which is appropriate, reportedly uh, named Active Research Knowledge. That's what it stands for in 2014. Barron's also reported that Wood, who's a devout Catholic, named the firm in a nod to the Ark of the Covenant, which is said to have held the ten commandments. Now, uh, you know, perhaps a more timely analogy is Noah's Ark with a flood of assets bursting into the Ark funds throughout the pandemic and then the tide moving out again with the recent market sell-off. Scott. What do you think, Leslie, about the idea that 
How much of this is just a matter of, of timing and, and good timing and making the right bets at the right time? She invests in a very specific type of stocks. She invests in a lot of companies that don't have profits. They're more kind of the smaller mid-cap stocks, obviously Tesla being the exception, although she's largely kind of ridden it up to being a large-cap stock. Uh, And so oftentimes you do see those names really do well in areas that, you know, you have bull markets, you have a lot of momentum to the upside. Investors get really excited about those, and that's been able to you know, help her deliver some alpha. Uh, but, you know, we've got a backdrop now where interest rates are rising. People are starting to get a little bit more conservative. Things like profits and fundamentals coming a little bit more into the forefront of investors' minds. And so stocks that she's invested in, regardless of her conviction, uh, they do tend to, you know, underperform in those types of environments. All right, Leslie, we appreciate it. That's Leslie Picker on the edge with us tonight. We turn back to our panel now, Bill Cohen, Michelle Romanow, and Trung Fan still with us tonight. All right, Bill, you tell me, uh, is she the face of the new market or is she a face of a new bubble? Well, I think, you know, Leslie was very thorough in her report, but also pretty generous. Uh, Look, there's no taking away from Kathy Wood that she had a great 2020. Uh, You know, a lot of people had a great 2020. You know, I've had a great run since 2009, since March of 2009, when the Dow was at 6,500 and now it's 31,000. And I didn't do a damn thing, Scott. Uh, What I think is that, you know, Kathy Wood uh, is unfortunately uh, probably yesterday's news already. She had a terrible February. You know, you had her on your show on February 17th. She was talking about Teladoc, Scott. You may remember this. It was at 270 a share as you were talking to her. Now it's 170. That's three weeks ago. It's down $100 a share. You know, I love her conviction. I love her passion. But, you know, we're not going to be talking about Kathy Wood much more. Michelle, she is the first, though, to say that her time horizon is five years. She's looking out longer than most. I I think it's all about time horizon. I mean, you compare her to the next Buffett. I mean, do you really want to bet on the crafts and the Coca-Colas and Amex long term? Or do you want to bet in basically the next generation, the Teslas and the Squares and and Zillow's? I actually think that, you know, there's going to be a lot of turbulence as these stocks probably go up. And for sure, if we pick short horizons, you know, I'm sure you're right. She had a bad February. I just think long term, she's very bullish on on where the future is going, and has probably picked a set of a set of a set of stocks that I think are going to perform much better uh, than the legacy ones. Uh, I'm 100. Well, she is a rock star right now. There is no doubt about that. Quickly, I totally agree with Michelle here. I just think uh, it's a uh, you can't look at the February performance. I mean, she was calling Tesla as a 1.4 trillion dollar company in 2019. Everybody lapped her out the door. And uh, when Tesla got up to about 800 billion, 900 billion, you know, it looked pretty vindicated. But still, it's choppy. It's going to be volatile. The price targets are still, to some people, frankly, insane. But uh, I mean, I'm invested in some of her ETFs. I like the ETF. And uh, I think uh, what she does very good is that she doesn't just hire a bunch of MBAs. She hires industry domain experts and teaches them how to become investors. I think that will give her an edge in the long run, and particularly in the biotech space, because if you want a growth area for the next 20, 30 years, that will be the quote-unquote next internet, it's probably going to be biotech. She's got people in that space, the experts, picking names there. And that's going to be extremely volatile, you know, buyer beware. But I'm a big fan of what she's doing. All right, we'll see if she bounces back. Well, Kathy Wood may be the biggest name in investing right now. There's still a lack of representation of women on Wall Street and in the boardroom. 
on this International Women's Day. What is taking so long? Next, right here on The Edge. Coming up, billionaires and a wealth tax. It's a war of words when our guest explains why philanthropy can't be the solution. Plus, this app is giving you a chance to raise your voice. And some of the biggest tech names are following its lead. But is this a clubhouse you want to be a member of? And we'll tell you tomorrow's edge today when On the Edge returns on CNBC. We're back on the edge. Stocks today, a mixed picture. The Dow ripped higher, but the Nasdaq closed down lower by more than 2%. You see the numbers there. Apple down 4%. Tesla mentioned that a few moments ago, relating to Kathy Wood, down 5%. Chip stocks taking it on the chin big time today. And Zoom closed lower by almost 8%. Now 47% off its high set back in October, even though so many of us continuing to Zoom. Well, as we've mentioned, Today, International Women's Day, there are many milestones marking success for gender equality, including the record number of female CEOs leading Fortune 500 companies. However, the 37 female chief executives only represent 8% of the total. Back with us now, our panel, Bill Cohen, Michelle Romanow, Trunk Fan. Michelle, progress, but now slow. We can do a lot better in this. And I think many people believe this. This was not a good year for women. Um, you know, so many women executives found themselves being, you know, chief executive officer in the in the office and at home. And so I think we lost a little bit of time there. And organizations need to be they need to keep doing the same things, fairness, transparency, building something that's mission driven. And I think for the women, it is really about getting comfortable with taking risks. I mean, one of the stories that I remember closest to me is, you know, when we were a true startup five years ago, I remember everyone that came to work for me, I said, look, you can choose up to 50% of your salary in stock uh, or up to 100% in cash. I don't really care. And I had so many guys come up to me and they were like, Michelle, I want to take 75, 80% of my salary in stock. I was like, you can't do that. The most is 50, 50. And the women, I mean, they were like, I want to take 10 or 20%. And so taking those risks kind of early and young gives you that ability to, uh, to climb up. But there's lots more work to do here. Yeah, Bill, I mentioned the progress we're, we're making 2018, 24 of 500 companies led by women to today in 2020, 37 of 500 companies now led by women. This isn't about just touching the glass ceiling or getting through it. We need to smash through it. How are we going to do that? You know, it's, it's just not good enough, uh, Scott. You know, last time I checked, something like 50.5% of the population was women. We have to do a much better job. You know, corporate America, let's face it, is pretty inhospitable to everybody who works there, uh, and not just women, but women have it particularly hard, uh, especially if they want to have a family. Uh, there's just not, a, there's a lot of lip, lip service paid to ESG and to, you know, advancement and transparency and trying to do the right thing, but it just doesn't translate to reality. And, you know, if you push too hard on some of these things, there's a lot of resentment, too, in corporate America, and I think that's a problem. And, uh, you know, we just have to be more honest about this. 
And yes, I agree with Michelle that you know perhaps you know everybody should take more chances, not just just women. But I mean, you know, the time has come where we have to uh, change this whole dynamic and stop giving lip service. And you know, I remember thinking about if women had been the CEOs of the Wall Street firms during the 2008 financial crisis, we may not have had a 2008 financial crisis. You know, too much testosterone at the top of Wall Street has led to one financial crisis after another. Let's make note, though, Jane Fraser recently taking over as the CEO of Citi, the first female CEO, a big step, a step in the right direction. later than it should have happened. Absolutely. All right, Bill, thank you. Thanks to our panel tonight as well. Bill Cohen joining us tonight along with Michelle Romanow and Trung Fan. We'll see all of you sometime soon, I hope. Edgy opinions, provocative questions, and controversial takes. Billionaire philanthropy, well, it seems like a noble cause, one that some may argue is even a duty of the rich. After the break, though, we talk to one critic who says it's actually a scam. Details next. Welcome back to On the Edge. We are less than 15 minutes away from the news with Shepard Smith. Shep, what can we look forward to at the top of the hour? Scott, a very busy night in the news. Great to see you. We have a jam-packed newscast just 14 minutes from now. The CDC released the highly anticipated guidelines for vaccinated people. Our own Meg Terrell will break that down for us, including what you can do and what you can't. Plus, the push to ban gender in the toy aisle. Why California may get rid of boys and girls sections. And more allegations against Governor Cuomo, New York state leaders calling for his resignation. The governor says he's not going anywhere. The news just minutes away, Scott. All right. We look forward to that and we'll see you there, Shep. Well, with a country divided by countless political, economic and social debates, there is no shortage of edgy opinions. We're going to share one with you now in tonight's War of Words. Here now is Anand Girdardas. He is the author of Winners Take All and the publisher of The Inc., who argues that the 1% uses philanthropy as a fig leaf to shield its true responsibility and liability. Good to see you tonight. Thank you so much for having me, and congrats on the, on the show. All right, so what, what's the problem with the wealthy uh, being generous? You know, I, I started reporting the book Winners Take All because I noticed that on the one hand, we lived in this era in which wealthy people are giving back as never before. You can't walk down the street without bumping into a billionaire with a foundation changing the world. Uh, things you talk about on this network, social enterprises, double bottom lines, triple bottom lines, uh, you know, capital that, that makes money for the planet as well as for investors, so on and so forth. And then it just sort of occurred to me, as it also has occurred to many other people, that it's interesting that all these modalities uh, occur at the same moment in history that it has actually been a time of growing, widening wealth and income inequality, growing capture of the spoils of the future by the very few at the top. And I began to wonder why it is that we live in this age of glorious philanthropy, so-called, but it happens to coincide with this age of extraordinary elite hoarding. What was the relationship? I began to wonder between the extraordinary elite hoarding of our time and the extraordinary elite helping. And as I did my reporting, spent time in this world, interviewed folks in this world at foundations, corporations, et cetera, what I found was that we live in this age in which the rich and powerful do everything they can to help except to change the system atop which they stand and often use philanthropy, weaponize philanthropy as a kind of anger management 
policy for populism, to douse those flames as a way of laundering the reputations that they have sullied by harming society in the way they made their money, uh, and as ways of actually increasing their political power and influence in this society through well, alleged acts of giving. Maybe. Maybe they don't trust the government to do the right thing with the money. They'd rather give it to causes themselves. And isn't this, despite the criticism that you have, a win-win for everybody? And why should we be nitpicking how billionaires give away their money to noble causes? Well, because I wrote the book to deconstruct the idea of the win-win. So I'm very glad you brought that up. And I also want to go back to the other thing you said, which is a core, core thing we got to deal with, especially on this network. There is this notion, a casual notion, that is in some ways the stepchild of Ronald Reagan's utterance that government is not the solution, government's the problem. 40 years on, we now have this notion that if you have a kind of marginal billion dollars lying around in someone's bank account or wherever, that billion dollars would be more wisely spent by some smart, rich person than by the government, right? I would bet 95% of people who regularly watch this network would subscribe to that view. Well, that view is actually completely false, with all due respect. And the reason most of us who do anything in this country are able to do it is because of an extraordinary chassis of a system that lets dreams be realized, whether it's the education system we have in this country, whether it's the court system that allows stations like this to be founded without fear that some person is going to steal your network, uh, which is a thing that could happen in other countries, uh, without... Well, what's the, the, what's the answer? I mean, you're, you're in favor, but you're in favor of Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax. In fact, you, you make the argument that the numbers that she throws out may be too low when others come on this network who have done quite well for themselves and who are quite generous in their own right and say there are just better ways of doing things. Why bog down the system with something new? If you want to raise more taxes from the wealthy, who, by the way, come on this network all the time and say the wealthy should pay more, there are just better ways to do it. Close loopholes, raise the capital gains tax. Why a wealth tax, which seems to be a war on the wealthy? It's not a war on the wealthy. Uh, it, when, when regular people across this country pay property taxes on their house, uh, which is a tax on their wealth, not their income. No one calls that a war on them. It just so happens that very rich people have most of their wealth in things other than one home. And a wealth tax is far from a war. The war, if anything, has been waged punching down on the middle class and working class and poor people of this country for a generation. Um, the idea that a wealth tax is is it an act of hostility or is it an act of vengeance when it's in fact an act of sound economic policy is laughable. And I'll, and I'll explain, there's an economic rationale for it, which is that it would be great to have that money lying around to actually reinvest in the commons, which has been defanged, defunded, and delegitimized in this country in childcare, universal childcare, in healthcare, in education, things like that. But there's a second reason, Scott, which is there is actually, and I know this is CNBC, but even without the funding issue, there is actually an argument to be made that there is a certain level of absolute wealth beyond which people are simply, just by breathing, too powerful to exist in a democracy that still thinks it's a democracy. Because simply by acting, spending that money, they are exerting power that is inconsistent 
with one person, one vote. I think Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax is a great idea. We, Bernie Sanders had a great proposal for a short-term pandemic one, a more general one. I know one. you think it's I a great idea. I frankly think all of them are too small. Uh, we need an erosive well, wealth tax that would shrink those fortunes and put some eros back in the economy. And a lot of people disagree with you, with his, which is why we will continue this conversation another time. It's good to see you tonight, Anand. Thank you for being with us. Next on The Edge, Clubhouse. It's the new hot app. But is there money at the end of the rainbow for this cutting-edge platform? We will discuss next. We're back on The Edge. The next big thing or the next big flop. Each night, we'll clue you into the companies that, and ideas that are on the cutting edge of business. Tonight, enter the Clubhouse, the buzzy, audio-only social media app that is gaining traction as the likes of Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, even Drake dropping in. The question remains, though, is there money to be made? Can it become a real legitimate business? Here to break that down, Joanna Stern, personal tech columnist for The Wall Street Journal. It's nice to see you this evening. I guess that's the big question. Aside from all the notifications that they're bombarding us with our, on our phones, uh, can they make money? Well, can they make money or can the actual creators on the platform make money? That seems to be kind of the big question that Clubhouse founders want to talk about right now. And they're trying to lure people to come to the platform, which is an audio only podcasting kind of conference call thingy. Um, it's my my professional take on what it is. Um, but that's what they're talking a lot about, is that they want people to come to their platform to make money. So presumably the company will make money and then pay them the money. I mean, is it a fad or is it something more than that? Is it successful because we're all bored out of our minds and it's freezing cold outside and once the sun comes out, we're out? Uh, that's my take. My take is that this is a pandemic thing. Um, it, I, I don't think that there, that audio-only social networking is a pandemic thing, but this sort of only app for audio communication and hanging out when we're home and hearing people sort of talk about their profession and talk about certain things and go to attend these sort of bigger audio-only events feels like if we could do that in person, we may not be sitting on our couch doing that on our phones and doing this on an app. That said, I think there's a, podcasting isn't a pandemic thing, but the idea of live podcasting feels like a pretty pandemic thing. I mean, that said, it's not like they're the only player in this space, right? Mark Cuban's got something down the road. Twitter's got spaces. Other people have other places. Yeah, and actually one of the nice things about this has been that it has been a startup, right? We've seen so many social media, big tech companies, Facebook, the Instagrams of the world, now Twitter copying this idea. Um, we've seen all of these big social media companies taking ideas and bringing them to their own. Um, but Clubhouse has felt like one of the first big breakout social media stars in a long time. And that's a really nice thing. And so my hope is that actually a, a company like Clubhouse can continue and figure out ways to succeed in this post-pandemic world. But also, yes, we're going to see these. Twitter already has spaces. They're trying to capture people from Clubhouse to come over to spaces. And really, the product works exactly the same. Well, let's see what happens when we get on with the rest of our lives. Joanna Stern, nice to see you tonight. We'll see you again soon. You've got the edge Maybe on I'll today's trading, but here's what we are watching tomorrow. 
The Dow hit an intraday high today. The tech-heavy Nasdaq, though, it got smoked again as interest rates remain a key and critical story. Plus, we'll be watching Disney's annual meeting and focusing on one major character hoping to make dreams come true on Wall Street. That stock has surged of late to record highs. An incredible comeback. Democrats planning to hold the final vote on the COVID relief bill tomorrow in the House. That does it for us tonight. Hey, I'm Ruben. My band and I have a new song. I'm also a tow truck driver. When you move over and slow down, you're making sure I get to go home at the end of the day and see my bandmates. When you see flashing lights, remember, they're not just roadside workers. Thank you for moving over and slowing down.